You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Um, but talking now um, to Heather Holtz, she's Deputy CEO of Launch Housing, and we've been touching base with Heather for a number of years through the establishment of Australia's first not-for-profit real estate agency called Homeground Real Estate. And, uh, yeah, Heather, as I say, is uh, Deputy CEO of Launch Housing, which is trying new ways to provide affordable housing to those at risk of homelessness and also to vulnerable families. And they've had a recent win with the Australian Tax Office, who's made a ruling that they can issue a tax-deductible receipt now to property owners that provide discounted rent to low-income households. And welcome back, Heather, and congratulations. No, thanks. thanks A lot of Australian firsts going on right now. (laughs) But maybe you can um, explain uh, the the tax office ruling, uh, what happens when people offer a property through home ground with discounted rent. Well, because home ground real estate's uh, like a, a social enterprise business of launch housing, and launch housing has uh, a tax status as a not-for-profit, where if you give money to us, we can give you a, a receipt that you can then, you know, use at tax time uh, to take down your taxable income, basically. Um, so this ruling recognises that by giving your property to us at below market rent, if it comes into the range of affordable and there's a definition around that, then um, we can give you a receipt at the end of the year, you know, in June, that you can use for your tax, um, doing tax. So it's kind of recognising what has been happening anyway, which is the generosity of those landlords who've been willing to take a lower rent. Uh, so it's, I think it's really cool in that respect because it gets around a whole lot of paperwork and, you know, the, as usual with tax... Um, tax law there's kind of really narrow definitions of things and so we were thinking well it should be recognized it would seem fair but you couldn't really say to a landlord it would be Uh, but with this ruling which is actually published on the tax office website if you google um, tax ruling launch housing or tax ruling home grown real estate you'll find it then people know exactly where they are um, financially. And so, so this is a very specific ruling, isn't it, that just applies to, to home ground real estate? That's correct. That's right. Um, we actually hope other um, agencies around Australia will take up the idea um, and they'll have to go through the um, considerable paperwork well, it, <laughs> of, it, of getting a, a ruling Is it a messy themselves. process to, to get that ruling? Because it's, it's a fantastic result, but I imagine it would have been kind of a, a long time in the making. Well, we needed to work with some tax advisors because we know a whole lot about... Um, you know, housing provision and, and, you know, case management, but not a lot about tax law. Um, and, you know, so we, we worked with uh, some, uh, you know, really good advisors on that who helped us navigate through. Um, for them, it was quite a simple concept, actually. And then it was just a matter of um, making sure everything was completely, uh, you know, the, the package of paperwork was there and that we abide by that for people um, so that they have got certainty. And and fundamental to it though is that uh, launch housing is a is a not for profit or a social enterprise as you describe it. That's exactly right. So a for profit real estate agency could not do the same thing. It's literally because we take that donation and put it to to that use, and we've got that tax status. Yeah. And so, do you anticipate that this will result in in a lot more housing stock? People being much more willing to uh, take rent at a at a reduced rate to supply it to to low income people and those at risk of homelessness. Look, uh, it's going to be interesting to see, actually. Um, it's really hard to know with, with this because we're sort of going into to Melbourne, you know, owners and saying, 
you know, would you would you let us have your houses? And so far people have at, at a reasonable rate and we don't know if this will make the difference, but we hope it will. Mm. Um, and we hope it will mean that people can take a little bit more off the rent as well and when they do decide, um, yeah. Well, maybe, I mean, how many houses are you managing now at the moment? Yeah, we've got about 250 now. So we, we opened in March 2014. So I guess that's two and a half years. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's interesting, I guess, using kind of a, a tax exemption in a way for, for a broader social purpose, isn't it? Because we've heard a lot about negative gearing recently and, and that kind of playing into the housing affordability problem that we have. But here we see kind of a, a tax exemption or um, the reduction in tax being used for something that's positive. Well, what this does is actually pin it to actual affordable provision. Um, negative gearing doesn't. And so there's an argument, which I don't actually subscribe to, <laughs> that, it, that it helps provide supply and, you know, helps affordability. Um, I, I, you know, all the experts who've done the modelling uh, don't seem to agree with that. Mm. Whereas this is actually using a tax... Um, ruling for for the purpose of pinning it to affordability, yeah. Mm. yeah. Why don't you subscribe to the negative gearing argument? Because the idea is that if uh, people are able to negatively gear and they, they provide their investment property for rent, they don't have to charge as much money for that rent, but that that's not bearing out? Well, no, I think where the... Um where the boon has really gone is in house prices, actually. I'm no economist, <laughs> but, you know, the, I've, I read with interest uh, the analysis um, that the economists make, and it would seem that it's proven inflationary, um, you know, that the rents kind of max up to where people can, can cope with them and above where many people can, which is where they have to rely on agencies like us. Um, and it's just too broad, uh, you know, you can negatively gear against a luxury property, for example. Um, and there's no... I just can't understand an argument that that's helping affordability. Well, the median rents are really high now. So, you know, $400 or something like that in many areas. So uh, what is considered affordable rent in, in your definition there? Yeah. So there's a quite a carefully worked out definition, um, which is about 80% of the market um, for people on um, a fixed income. Um, so they need to be getting at least some um, eligible for some Centrelink income, which could be a family allowance or, or rent assistance, yeah. So it goes, it goes up higher than um, people in public housing, um, but it's still uh, in, that, uh, in that kind of low-income area. And I've sort of noticed um, in terms of homelessness more broadly over this past winter, a lot of people have been noticing, I think, more homeless people on the streets and, and talking about it and, and being really concerned about it. Um, and we've recently heard that the Victorian government's um, putting up $109 million towards a, a housing package. Are you hopeful that this will um, start to address a problem that seems to be getting worse, at least around the Melbourne CBD? Uh, well, first of all, it is getting worse. Um, we work with the City of Melbourne on the council that happen every two years um, and it, it's uh, over 100 more than it was two years ago which was um, about 40 more than it was two years before that. So it had, it had been around 100 people every two years. Now we're up to 240 some. Mm. So it's not um, people's impressions correct. Um, and because there's more rough sleeping we also know there'll be more people crammed up with friends, relatives, whoever will give, give them a favour, all those other types of homelessness will be more too. We, we'll have to wait for the census to tell us that. So um, the public concern has been um, really heartening, actually. Um, some of it's been a bit negative, but overwhelmingly I actually think Melburnians have been really decent about this and really concerned at seeing, um, you know, their fellow people on the street. And that's really helped 
bring the government, state government in particular, but the city, the local councils have been pretty active too um, in putting together this package of, of funding, which is a good start. Mm-hmm. And what it does is um, answer, you know, the things that um, people like us have been calling for, which is we've got to have some housing specifically um, set aside for the rough sleeping um, people who always miss out um, otherwise. And uh, so that's that's partly what this package is about, which is really good news. Yeah, Heather Holst is with us. She's Deputy CEO of Launch Housing. And you, I mean, you've welcomed in particular the Family Supportive Housing Project. And as it's just been announced, I actually don't know what that is. What 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 will we see come from that package? Yeah, so that's $13 million towards um, uh, a project that I've been working on for some years now to try and, try and get out of the blue. Uh, so basically it's um, something that's really common in Europe and, and North America, which is called permanent supportive housing. So it's for that um, group of people who are going to need ongoing support, which is a really small proportion of um, the people in need, but um, pretty tough uh, situations that they find themselves in and really need a bit extra. So basically it's it's housing that you can stay in with the supports as you need them connected up so common ground um elizabeth street common ground is a the version of that for single people so this is for um women with children who are um in in the child protection system and at massive risk of not staying together with their kids um so that's what we're we're building up so that 13 million gave us a pretty good um lift along with that yeah mm. so more to come on that one yeah. yeah, great. And and if we can just return um, in the time we've got left, uh, Heather, to to the ATO ruling and home ground real estate, if people were to, if they've got a property and they want to rent it out maybe for the first time or they're with another agency and they want to go and um, over to, to home ground real estate, one, they don't have to rent it at discounted rent, do they? And maybe tell us about the, the process and what you offer. No, people don't have to rent at discount rent if they can't um, cope with that because they've got a mortgage or, you know, lots of things they need to pay for that's that's life but the commission will still help us run the place um because we cross subsidize um the the lower commissions we take when people go more affordable um so you can ring up um nine two double eight nine six double zero um and have a talk uh, to one of our um real estate team and we um pride ourselves on kind of trying to make arrangements that suit the individual um and what we find is that the owner's are really cool about um, being a bit flexible with uh, the tenants as well. Um, so you know they're they're more broad-minded, I suppose, about um, about who goes in, and you know a lot of the owners, for example, are more concerned that someone's able to stay in an area than that they have, you know, a, a higher income as long as they can pay the rent. Um, and so you know we're not going to ask anyone to do anything for free. This is a commercial arrangement, mm. and. Um, we have low vacancy rates and we can make um, make good arrangements with people. And um, I, I was thinking today it's, you know, 38 degrees. It's, it's kind of the start of what's um, probably going to be a really hot summer again. And, and it's kind of, I often think, walking through the city during winter, that it's a particularly rough time to be out, to be without a home. But summer must present real challenges as well. A lot of people retreat inside um, with air conditioning fans if they can in the extreme heat. Does that kind of present challenges for organisations like, like yours when people potentially dehydrated stuck out in the open on these really really hot days yeah it sure does and a lot of people don't enjoy good health either and if you've got like a circulatory disease or you know respiratory disease the extreme heat is hard hard on you yeah look um sleeping out's really dangerous in um 
for personal attack but also your health. Um, so we've got to do whatever we can to, to get past it. Well, congratulations again, and uh, a really, I mean, a couple of Australian firsts there, our first um, re- uh, not-for-profit real estate agent, and also now for those uh, uh, property owners who rent their houses at discounted rent and bring the uh, rent down into that afford- affordable sort of price range, uh, then a tax-deductible receipt can be issued to the property owner from the Australian Tax Office. And uh, Heather Holst has been with us, Deputy CEO of Launch Housing. If you want to find out more, uh, you can contact um, Launch Housing or Home Ground Real Estate directly. And uh, one last thing I wanted to just check with you, uh, Heather, is if people, it's, it's as you say, it's a commercial arrangement, but people do get to see who the tenants are and go through that process and just in that normal way that other real estate agents operate. That's right. So our, our agents will kind of do the applications, um, screening, see who's a good match and then um, check that off, of course, with the owner because they have final say. Yeah, Yeah. great. Thanks so much for coming back to Triple R. Don Watson's popped by. He's released A Companion to the Bush, his beautiful tribute to the Australian bush and those who live in it, which came out a couple of years ago. Uh, The latest offering is called The Single Tree and it's a collection of writing from over 150 people from Henry Lawson and Thea Astley to Charles Bean and Patrick White and fragments and stories from many other lesser known and and some largely unknown artists, itinerants, explorers and scientists. And it meanders back and forth from the contemporary to the historic. And uh, Don's in the studio with us on a very warm day in Melbourne. It's really great to have you, Don. Thank you. It's good to be here. And I think um, maybe we just start by talking about the bush. You came in when you released the bush, uh, the, bo- uh, the book that you released um, a couple of years back. And I suppose in this book you, you write about uh, a time when even our Prime Minister was a former swaggy and uh, things have changed a lot with our relationship to the bush but yet it is still part of our identity in Australia. Yeah, it's a curious thing. I don't know why. I mean, I actually start the, this, the introduction to this book with a story about a, 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 a war veteran who's on a soldier settlement block in the 1920s and he can't make any money and things were going bad, couldn't get any water onto it so he... Um, got in his old jalopy and drove to Canberra where the new Parliament House was. Thought he might find a bit of work there, but he wanted to see his local member. So he pitched his tent by the Malonglo River and wandered up in the evening, met the local member, and then Billy Hughes, the wartime Prime Minister, showed up. And in the meantime, before he'd gone up to the house, he'd caught an eight-pound Murray cod out of the Malonglo. He'd struggled to do that now. You might get a carp. And um, he uh, went up on the roof of the house and said, I've got a Murray Cod down there waiting for my breakfast and Billy here said well why didn't you you know tell us we could have eaten that for dinner instead of we having to buy your dinner in the cafeteria you know (laughs) 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 when the bush and the parliament were sort of as one and um, and the politics were I mean there's a great story about a politician when they first started broadcasting parliament and there was one guy from some outer electorate who before he began his maiden speech sent a message to his dentist saying he'd be up at the weekend could he have his teeth ready (laughs) (laughs) false teeth have also gone (laughs) but the idea was not to sort of just do the historical stuff and the the quaint stuff but to try and get a picture of the personality of the bush in a way it's it's sort of and and its ambiguities and and, um, the hold it's had on us It's, it's various holds on us you know, it's not just Barnaby Joyce's hold on us. You know, there are other things. I mean, Barnaby thinks he's the only person who understands the bush. But um, it's not so. And there have been some 
great minds come out of it and um, some acts of incredible heroism incredible folly and incredible bastardry and I wanted to sort of capture them all and some which were both you know folly and heroic mm-hmm. like the clearing of it and oh, so I mean, you wrote about that extensively in the bush about the Streslecki ranges where you grew up and the the amazing effort it took to clear that magnificent forest and I actually was just up on the Murray recently and paddling through the red gum forest and every major red gum tree that we were paddling past was ringbarked because the yeah. idea was if we ringbark these trees then more large trees will will grow and it'll make space for it but of course the opposite happened you know yes. you Were got a whole lot of scrub old ringbark old, yeah. old but yeah. they're still standing you know they're dead but they're yeah. still standing amazing magnificent 500 year old trees that are ringbarked and it's heartbreaking but mm. the idea was wrong flawed yeah uh, of what would happen to the bush which was it just kind of turned to scrub yes and, and the, the, the impact was both immediate and and enduring you know so that um, ringbarking was just the greatest obsession in the country. I mean, the whole landscape was ringbarked basically by teams of ringbarkers. And that's, I remember going through East Gippsland when I was a boy and just endless dead trees, some from ringbarking, some from Christmas beetles, which came because of the change in the, in the ecology at, at the foot of the trees. So there were no insects to fight the Christmas beetles and they just died of dieback. But the, the I mean... Some of those, there, there's another horrible story about the ring barking of trees, and that is after the Mabo decision. We know that more than a few farmers got rid of any canoe trees, any signs of Aboriginal, previous Aboriginal o- occupation off their land because they believed that they were going to lose title to their land. There's all, you know, the bush is a place of phobias and rumour. And, and what was the the reasoning behind releasing this as a volume you, you write sort of in the in the introduction about the benefit of having fragments and and pulling bits out from the bush anecdotes that are both kind of scientific they're poetic they're stories histories of the bush what's the benefit to that when you've already written your own book all about the bush uh, well i'd like to say it was commercial but um there's not much <laughs> by the time I paid for all these permissions I'll have to sell a lot of copies to get a penny out of it so it's not commercial I can swear to that but um, well originally the idea for the, the bush idea was brought to me by Penguin who wanted a book of the bush a, 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 an anthology and I foolishly and with a great deal of hubris said no I'll write a book of my own thanks and when that was finally done I realised that I had all this material that would make an interesting book. In fact, far more than, you know, ten times what's in this book. And and not not an ordinary anthology, not the, not the best writing about the bush, but some of the great writing, but also a lot, lots of people who, as you said, were really invisible in our history, but whose writing has a sort of tremendous immediacy and... and and they're observing things that narrative writers had to make up. I mean, it's, it's right in front of them. And they're recording moments that are right in front of them. And they, I, mean, I find them terribly moving very often. Um, you know, and if, a narrative history is, of course, a necessary and a wonderful thing, but it is someone's narrative, whereas this is like the pieces shattered in front of you. Um, and it means that you can 
in a, in a way be discursive without doing anything just you know, simply putting it putting all this stuff in so there are bits of you know women's observations of of what's happening in when, uh, on the frontier and there are the observations of commentators like Mary Jurek and all the old familiars um, good deal of material about the Aboriginal frontier of which you know, until the last 30 years people forget was largely usually confined to about two paragraphs at the beginning of any general history um, we forget an awful lot about what the bush was like even 40 years ago um, I was just reading Stan Grant's essay on um, his uh, on Aboriginal Australia which has just come out and it reminded me of the of, of my own childhood with the Aborigines from the Jackson's Track camp who worked for us. I mean, we were poor farmers, but, any, but because you didn't have to pay them anything, you could employ Aboriginals. Mm. We had an Aboriginal bloke lived with us in a, in a tent down by the Cypresses. God knows how he survived. They were part of rural life then, now largely vanished. And I mean, as, as Dylan said, that it, it is a whole lot of fragments of a whole lot of people's work, over 150, I think I, I, I tried to count. And uh, and you do write in the introduction that in, it's chronological order by alphabetical, really, um, the way that you've put it together. And But you didn't want to provide an overarching narrative uh, because there would be a shifting. Mm. And I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit, because I think we're, we're so big on narratives now, aren't we? Everyone mm. wants, everyone's got a narrative. This is, this is anti-narrative. This yes, is, um, anti-narrative. I should have put that in the subtitle, an anti-narrative. I mean, Frank Moore has had a discontinuous narrative. This would be an anti-narrative. Yeah, well, I think, you know, usually these things have little introductions to each thing, setting it in context. And I thought, well, when you do that, you're really defeating the purpose. I, I wanted these things to just sort of stand as they are. A good book to take to bed, you know, if, if you're like me, two or three pages is about as much as you can get through, but it's necessary to sleep, you need two or three pages, well this is, you know, you can choose them like that. <laughs> well, if I think for reading to old people like me in a few years in a home or something, you know, it's just they're nice fresh things without much connection one to the other. The, um, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's... It, for me to put each one in context would have been really to defeat the purpose. I, I, it wasn't just that I was lazy. Um, I, I think it's not hard for people to sort of just pick it up and say, oh, here we are on the Murray. Um, here we are, you know, out in, the, out in Birdsville. There's an amazing journal. Most of them it was terribly hard to cut down to size. There was a woman called Mona Henry who went out to Birdsville in... 1951 with the Presbyterian Inland Mission as a nurse and her descriptions of life out there are just, they're just brilliant no one could have no professional writer could have made them more um, you know sort of exciting and, and devastating in many ways um, and there are many others like that you know there's a that character Arthur Ashwin prospector and wanderer and hunter of aborigines and who ends up living with aborigines it's very hard to cut that down to size here he is in early in the narrative his narrative his memoir hunting aborigines with a with a will um and describing in devastating detail 
what the plan was and how it was done. And there he is at the end, happily living in an Aboriginal community on a bit of land out in the edge of the West Australian wheat belt, growing roses that he buys from catalogue in kangaroo dung with a few goats and a few sheep and cattle, calling himself a pastoralist, getting around in a pair of motorbike um, goggles to, for his chlamydia. It must have been a terrifying sight, this old bugger. But looked after by all this, living as a combo, as they called them, with children, some of them, he wasn't sure who, who had whose children were whose. And he says, I never have to lift a finger. They look after me so well. And he's, he's obviously become, in a sense, Aboriginal. Mm while being, you know, the most profound racist. There are so many... Um, st- I, I kind of liked reading it and getting a little sense of something, a little sense of someone's writing, their style, their particular attachment to the bush. But one that I particularly enjoyed, maybe because it was unexpected, was Tim Flannery's contribution, writing about the evolution of the, the kangaroo and how it kind of evolved from this possum that had a very different type of... Um, ankle joint which mm. could kind of dislocate <laughs> and even that was like well I had no idea about the evolution of kangaroos which are so uh, synonymous with Australia's identity and, and sense of self and projection to the world as well yes well you could take you could take three pages from 10,000 that Tim Flannery's written and that'd be good mm. um, so I suppose what I was thinking there well probably people won't be expecting a piece about the joint of a kangaroo now it works and, I mean, I do remember him writing about how the, uh, a possum's joint flips backwards and you, it makes, him, makes it possible for them to run down trees as well as up trees. Mm. He, I mean, he's a wonderful writer. He's a, he's, a, he's a treasure of a nature writer. But we have a lot of them, you know, there is, and we have had for a long while. There's, you know, Tim Lowe on birds and other creatures is a genius. Yeah, but they but they go, you know, a lot of the great nature writing, like George Seddon and these characters, are a lot of them are forgotten um, or read by specialists or the anthropologists, you know, who were the Stanners and Roths and these people who really did astounding work. I like surveyors too, who were sort of unsung. Um, but they're really seeing seeing something... And they had the energy not just to see and to destroy or to take... They didn't see... When they, didn't, when they saw the land, they didn't necessarily see, see pound shillings and pence signs and work out how many sheep they could fit between the trees. They actually saw something that interested them. Um, like, why are these trees like they are? And um, how come these creatures live the way they do? And how's it all been done? And how, do, how have Aboriginal... You know, there, there is evidence here of work which was forgotten by most... Oh, no, they never did anything, these people. They just wandered about. But some of them looked more closely, which are, is a sort of lesson for the rest of us, really. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we're speaking with Don Watson about his book, A Single Tree, Voices from the Bush. And I mean, the concept of the bush... Australia Is Australia the only country with this concept of the bush, Don? Or is it is it sort of borrowed as a term? Ah, um, oh, the bush, well, it's a, it's a South African term, Um you know how we picked up a lot of weeds from South Africa with people passing through, and you know half the flora of Australia sort of came through on people's trouser cuffs. I think you know, all these terrible things. I think we Still exported happens. we exported <laughs> a few to them as well. Yeah. But among the words that came was bush, bosh, um, and uh, I, I guess the there's you know there's the, the bush of South Africa, and I think it may have some South American connection as well. It has a different meaning in the United States, of course. 
bush. <laughs> but um, the... Um, I, I mean, well, the bigger question really is, do any other modern developed countries have such a strange connection to the um, to the landscape? I mean, we we conceive of Australia really as a landscape. I don't know whether I mentioned this when I was talking to you about the bush, but, but when I was in the in Keating's office, he, he was going on about the flag, you might recall, and this created a paroxysm around the country of horror. How dare you think about it? But it, it was a boon to primary school teachers because they sent in a, all their kids' flags, designs. They obviously got them to do this. Good way to see what they think about the country. Well, all of them were of the landscape. There wasn't a building to be seen and there were only two people and they were both Bob Hawke in these flag designs, which we put up, of course, for Paul to see. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them, he was, he was in a gum tree and the other one he was standing on top of Uluru. So, you know, and it, it's strange that we do because we're highly urbanised country, have been for a century, and we still think somehow that we are of the landscape. And most of us know absolutely nothing about it and you would think by and large don't care about it um but it's an odd an odd thing it's it's interesting you've written a lot about the u.s as well as australia as people would know and i um picked up your book american journeys yesterday just to kind of familiarize myself with it it was sitting on the bookshelf and um in the the first few pages you say you know in in australia's past we didn't get around humming, waltzing Matilda or playing as Ned Kelly, we culturally used American icons like Davy Crockett and um, played cowboys and Indians rather than adopting these kind of Australian cultural tropes that people understand. Mm. Yet culturally we've been influenced so much by somewhere else and the landscape, the Australian landscape, still continues to play this kind of role in our imagination. How do you account for that kind I don't, of... I don't know how we account for that. It's a funny thing. I mean, we account for it partly by the, just the, the sheer power of the American um, popular culture. You know, the, the, well, you know it's their most their dominating export. Irresistible. <clears throat> I think it was something also about those Victorian beards on our outlaws. We didn't, they, they were sort of, there wasn't much charisma attached to a beard when I was growing up and probably still isn't. I think it's been a problem with all the Ned Kelly films. I mean, who wants to... I suppose they've come back a bit later, they have haven't bit, they? Yeah. <laughs> Might be a good time to make another Ned Kelly film. Um, and I, I guess it was, it, it was largely just the, the, the technology of American culture which overwhelmed us. Even as we were becoming anti-American, you know, during the Vietnam War, we were taking on more and more American culture. But we didn't... You see, I mean, we all knew Walsing Matilda, which is truly a wonderful, mad song. And I think so long as we keep singing it, we'll never go fascist. You, you, you cannot march to it and you can't get all hyper-nationalistic about down came a jumbuck. You know, it hope you, not. It, it just sort of, you don't salute when you say that. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm all for it. But it's strange. We, didn't, we don't have that great songwriting tradition. I mean, very few of Australia's songs are original. Walsing Matilda is a Scottish tune. Um, um, Click Go the Shears is an American tune I mean again you can't really get terribly fascist about Click Go the Shears um, <laughs> why, why is fascism on your mind I wonder oh, I can't imagine <laughs> I can't imagine <laughs> but, uh, even before him who shall remain nameless mm. um, uh, I, I do remember somebody once saying that they arrived on a migrant boat in the 19 
40s and when they saw the wharfies sitting around having a smoke they thought this is a safe country to be in <laughs> there's no there's an, an attitude which is good I I don't know I mean we the other curious thing about Australian folk songs is that they're never about love we never wrote about love um old A.L. Lloyd the folklorist who had a radio program on the ABC for years and years and years said that it's the strangest thing mm. it couldn't be just that there was a great shortage of women up until about 1860 and they weren't willing to write about their love of non-women as it were these people um it doesn't make any any sense but we didn't we just must be very diffident about those things and don't say that but america americans are writing songs about love from day one mm. um there's a lot of written about you know f fear and and being lost like the bush itself is something i mean a, a thread through this book is this people sort of unknowing like looking around there's this vastness uh about the bush that so many write about and i think that's i mean were there other th themes like that or things that that you found common across all of these different writers and fiction and and uh i imagine in painting as well and visual arts yeah well it's curious you know i mean just on that on that theme of love i mean if you look at i, I think the iconic painting of the australian landscape is um drysdale's the drover's wife and that painting is about the distance between men and women. I mean, she's standing in the foreground as if waiting for a bus or anything to get her the hell out of here. And he's, you know, hopeless, feckless male trying to fix a tyre on the jalopy. <laughs> and, and you think she's had him and the whole business. And um, I, it may be that we, you know, that there is a theme of isolation, of, of melancholy brought on i don't know whether you felt that when you were on the murray for instance but i camped by the murray many many years ago and i remember that as each day went past with this old river floating by you felt smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more insignificant it's a gives it's a great it's a great way to realize what a speck we are mm. um and i think a lot of that does get you know the, the, the theme of the weird melancholy of the bush um, or the power of nature um, and the struggle against nature is um, is a familiar theme, as is the sort of sense of of loss. As much as you know, there's this hope. There's hope going out there, clearing, improving, making a place fit for your uh, your descendants. Progress, but with all that theme, there is all that also that theme of possible failure. Um, even likely failure, the struggle. It's not nature again you, it's the government again you. Um, fate, Murphy's Law, all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, Murphy's Law is strong, isn't it? Mm -hmm. There was something, reading your book just after the US election result, when a certain someone has ascended to the presidency over there, um, it was kind of, in a way, therapeutic reading about the bush, a place that's that's open, that's vast, and it kind of calmed me down <laughs> in a way reading about that and not reading about the destruction that... I mean, it's, a, it's a but about, in part, um, the impact of humans on the bush, your book, but it's not about the destruction that humans bring on 
each other at that direct level in a political sense. And I wonder for you, I mean, the bush clearly pl- plays a very large role for you imaginative, imaginatively. Do you feel you need to kind of go out to the bush often to kind of rejuvenate and, and, and to, to experience it in that visceral sense? It's, it's not as clinical as that, but um, I have got a section from Bill Garner's book in here. I mean, Bill's a great camper and, and wrote a PhD and then had it published as a book about our, our predisposition for, to camping and living in tents um, right from the beginning. So whether that has a therapeutic effect, I mean, he, Bill's been going to this same place for years and years and years and years and years and used to go camping with his father and so on and so on. I think a lot of people do use it therapeutically. You know, the, there's the camping culture and the caravan park culture, which is largely hidden from lots of people, but it's very strong. As there are God knows how many grey nomads just constantly touring the countryside. <laughs> uh, same in the States, you know. Mm. The, the, the Winnebago's that you'd pass one day and they'd pass you again, you know, three days later and they'd just sort of... And the big, and the big <laughs> hangars where they just stay for the winter time. And yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a... It's a uh, I think it is a sort of... Uh, a part of our national therapy. And it, but it's not just the sort of the sedate grey nomads, you know. There are people who go out in their four-wheel drives and just to chew up some dust, just to drive like lunatics around and around places. Yeah, you come across yeah. them in the bush sometimes. One yeah. one um, passage that really struck me and made me think about, you know, the very different people that I suppose have, have lived and written about Australia. Um, I think it was in Bill Gamage's passage that you've chosen on Alfred Howard and this, this guy who didn't compare the Australian landscape to Europe all the time actually just looked at it at face value at what he was seeing and that seemed... Um, refreshing, refreshingly different. Yeah, I, I think I think A. W. Howard was, you know, I don't have many heroes. I try not to, but I think you know, if I had a nineteenth-century hero of Australia, he has Howard has become it. I and mean, I think he was a, a an extraordinary bushman, extraordinary mind, <clears throat> um, both in its you know its quality and its curiosity. I mean, he wrote he wrote at length. Um, about Aboriginal culture in southeastern Australia, he understood. He wrote at great length about the burning um, regimes and what it, what the implications of that had been you know, for the bush that we were now looking at. He was a phenomenal bushman himself. I mean, if if the government had had the wit to send him instead of Burke and Wills, I mean, he would have been up and back in three weeks instead of this kind of epic disaster that unfolded. They sent him off to get. The bodies and and fine king and he was up and you know he was like he took a train he was just there and back no problem um an amazing man with you know with a with a great sensitivity and, and if you're in any way an historian it, you're always looking for people like that because there's always someone there who's not thinking the same way as everybody else the, you know, and they, they sound a bit like you, or you know, that's what a revisionist historian is really doing in a way, saying, well, because the excuse is always, well, everyone was like that then. Well, they weren't. There was always someone thinking differently, and Howard, unfortunately, if we'd all got, you know, decided to think like Howard from the end of the 19th century, we wouldn't have made such a mess of the bush, and we would have done a lot better with um, coming to grips with. Aboriginal Australia, and but of course we didn't. 
Um, but I'm glad you picked out Howard. He's a he's a he's one of the greats. I think. Yeah, it's mm. good to walk his the mountain named in his honour as well. Yeah, it's a good one that one. But what about people that haven't been included? I suppose. Um, look, I. I you know, I haven't um, been able to read, it, read every single page yet, but you, I don't think Dorothy McKellar's there or you dedicate it to Manning Clark. I don't know. You know, there's there's people that... Um, Picnic Hanging Rock isn't in it. No. Oh, no, <laughs> so, you know, there's there's iconic stuff, I suppose, that people might think might be in a collection like this, but it is its own... As you say, there's, there's probably as many unknown people in there and, and fragments from diaries and things that um, have been put together with... Banjo Patterson and mm. others, D.H. Lawrence. So it is it's a unique collection in that way and it's not trying to find all the best writing, as you say, or the most iconic writing necessarily. No, you could make, you know, you could do 100 books like this. Dorothy McKellar, I think, I went off my country a bit when the climate deniers started using her as sort of proof that... Mm, I'm not going to give them any Look, it says here, droughts <laughs> and flooding rains, you know. <laughs> oh, thanks very much. Um, so, and I suppose that was the one poem we learned. Um, and it was the one poem about love, although it was about a country rather than another human being. Um, the others, yes, Picnic Hanging Rock, Wake and Fright, um, there are heaps and heaps of them, heaps of them. In fact, every now and again I think of them while I'm walking along and make a sucking sound sound and jump in the air thinking how the hell did I leave that out <laughs> um, but you just couldn't put everything in it's a, there's a huge literature but I I wanted it to be you know from to cover as much of time and space as I could and um, and to leave room for the sort of stuff that's always left out but which was part of people's experience of the bush like I really like a little thing by a former school teacher about living in a boarding house in southwestern western australia i really like that a lot of people did live in boarding houses and i think it's probably where a lot of men and women met and got married and whatever but, but and, I, and i imagine there are you could write good little novels about what happened in boarding houses <laughs> but you know i wanted to sort of try and get under the skin of the place a bit um like I say, try and find the personality of it, including the personality of animals and birds. Mm. Mm. Well, congrats on the book. And uh, A Single Tree is what we've been speaking about, Voices from the Bush. It's compiled by Don Watson, um, put out through Penguin, and really um, goes... Uh, or hand, hand in glove with um, with the bush that uh, Don released a couple of years ago, which um, he spoke to us about when it came out, and all the best with it. And um, you said it wasn't for our commercial success, but let's hope <laughs> that it yeah, is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, thanks for coming in; it's really great That's to speak with you again. Thanks very much. Cheers. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.